Okay, so the candle is lit, Sherman. You know what that means. You know what time it is. What does that mean? It means it's time for the Eternia Review. Uh, and welcome <laughs> to the Eternia Review. My name is Ben. And I'm Truman. And we're doing a deep dive going through episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This week, episode 11, Like Father, Like Daughter. And it is totally Like Father, Like Daughter. There's plenty of cute moments. A lot of cute moments in this one. So we open on some fang-like rocks and pan over to Snake Mountain. You know it's going to be a good episode when they open on Snake Mountain. Lots of excitement. They're just going to go straight for the Skeletor plot. We cut over to Skeletor's throne room. I mean, it's like he's got like his meeting table where everybody else sits around. I don't know if I missed this in other episodes, but behind each one of the chairs at his meeting table... At least in this episode, there was like a black demon creature with a big red open screaming mouth, just like sitting perched on the back of each one of the chairs. Really? Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Talk about a stressful boardroom. So you're sitting at a table with this, like, it looks like an egg yolk, like a big orange hemisphere in the middle, and there are white bones sprouting from it. You've got Skeletor just cackling intermittently these black shadow creatures sitting right behind your head oh my god yeah you aren't kidding it's a weird looking table it doesn't even look like there's chairs right now there's like chairs sometimes but in this scene there are no chairs because it's just skeletor and trap jaw skeletor's like flexing like he's got a little stress ball he's holding out because it's not a stress ball we find out but it's like a diamond or something that he's like clenching his muscles on he's just like got his arm at a 90 degree angle just flexing Holding this salmon-colored crystal as he talks to Trapjaw, who's been summoned to get his army ready. And we have a real early Skeletor quote of the week. Because it was like him and Trapjaw have like one of the best deliveries of anything. Because Skeletor, like this might even be how the episode opens, but he's like, are you ready? And then like. (laughs) Trapjaw's just like, oh, I'm ready. It, it was like a Macho Man Randy Savage delivery from Trapjaw. It was excellent all around. The writing, the acting, perfect. A plus. Right after this, Skeletor, who's holding the stress ball jewel, says, I hope He-Man tries to stop us this time because this time we will crush him and then dramatically crushes the jewel in his hand. To demonstrate what he will do to He-Man. So Skeletor had no plan. I thought it was a magic crystal or something that was going to play into the episode. Just drama. Oh, it was explicitly only for drama. The consummate show skeleton showing his strong suits once again. We cut over to Palace Eternia. Man-at-Arms is demonstrating a rope gun on Orko. Once again, a lot of light bondage. And not the last from this episode either. Oh, no. So this rope... Gun is supposed to shoot out a laser rope that will trap the encircled creature until they turn off the laser rope. Sorry, it's a laser lasso? Excuse me. (laughs) Yeah, it's supposed to be inescapable because it's lasers. It's a lasso that has been imbued with the power of zaps. So that does sound quite unstoppable to me. 
actually in the context of the show 100 percent the best thing they can make it because it's like when they shoot it around orco it is literally glowing like any other magic zap would glow like white shimmering lines lasso powered by zaps manded arms and tila still have some work to do though because orco slips out extremely easily they say some science words about what they could do to fix it like tila and manded arms do like father like daughter stuff like they both go into like complete star trek jargon about what they need to do to the laser lasso a ton of techno babble in this episode and the king who's there watching the demonstration looks so bored while they're talking (laughs) what are the things they say they have to adjust the radiation output which implies that this rope is radioactive good thing they're testing it on orco and not i don't know a hapless villager Suddenly, the sorceress flies overhead in hawk form, and Prince Adam excuses himself. He says he has, like, an appointment, and nobody believes him. They all talk about all he ever does is go for fun, 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 or something. Tila mentions, I wish Adam would take an interest in anything else. And the king, in the most disappointed father voice I've heard in this series, says... I wish he would. Yeah, he is just crestfallen at the disappointment his son is. But no one really does anything to redirect Prince Adam. Yeah, I noticed that too. They just complained about it and they they didn't do anything about it. Like they're voicing their concerns, but not trying to get any sort of constructive criticism, not like saying, hey, like, are you really going somewhere? Or are you just going to fish again and smoke some weed? I guess they figure... Prince Adam is in his 20s now, and he's got to figure it out himself. He's living at home with his parents, hanging out with his pet all day. They encourage him by making him go on various diplomatic missions, but like, I don't know. Prince Adam walks through the garden and transforms into He-Man. They like spend a long time in this transition into He-Man, it seems. Because they like walk and Cringer talks about how he doesn't want to go to go see the sorceress because they're going to be something they have to do. Prince Adam says something about how they should go. And it's like, it's like a, you know, two minutes or whatever, but it seemed like a long time. For effectively a throwaway scene, they could have just had him transform anywhere or just cut over to Skull as He-Man and you assume. But I suppose there has to be at least one transformation scene every episode. And, you know, they just wanted to give the narrative some space, fill out the time as it were. The sorceress awaits in Castle Grey Skull and says that Skeletor has some plan unspecified. The plan. He Man has to go to Stardika, which he notes there's only an abandoned fortress there. The sorceress does give He Man a little bit more detail, says that Skeletor has rallied Beastman and Trackjaw, and they are assembling an army. That will take over Eternia and eventually Castle Grayskull and its secrets. So she's putting an emphasis on that. The ultimately bad thing is Castle Grayskull. Like, they're going to take over Eternia and then Castle Grayskull. And then Castle Grayskull's Grayskull's secrets. secrets. So she's more worried about the secrets of Castle Grayskull than the Kingdom of Eternia. Which caused me to go back and they mention... I think in the intro that part of He-Man's responsibilities are to protect the secrets of Castle Grayskull. And they talk about secrets one more time later in the episode. What secrets? 
Yeah, what are the secrets of Grayskull? I mean, there's the space portal, but that's not really a secret. And Skeletor can get to the moon too. She could travel through time through her time window, but that's not really a secret because Skeletor can travel through time too, or could anyway. She does have that huge television. And so maybe the secret is that she doesn't... It's kind of like as soon as you buy a truck, everybody wants you to help them move as soon as it gets out that you have the home theater, everyone's like, hey, so the game this weekend, you maybe I'll just bring over some hot dogs and you can host. And you know Skeletor wants the big screen because he's stuck watching his old school, like little skeleton ball watching the show as events unfold so he knows what's going on. Meanwhile, the sources is watching all the events of the episode on her giant big screen television that's on her wall. <laughs> so maybe that's what he's after. Just a better viewing experience. Yeah, that's the... The whole reason Skeletor wants to break into Castle Grayskull. Yeah, he's that uninvited guest you want to get out, you know? Well, then it's not really a secret. I guess not from Skeletor, but I haven't seen any big screens over at Palace Eternia. So maybe it's a secret that the sorceress doesn't want King Randor and Queen Marlena always popping by. No, because what, what happened when Skeletor found out? He keeps trying to break in. I would think that the royals would be good guests, though. Like they would bring over plenty of food, giant cakes, entertainment. Okay, so He-Man is going to enlist Man-at-Arms to go stop Skeletor and his mysterious plan, which is to raise an army. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that complicated of a plan. There isn't really a plan. He's just raising an army. He already has a robot army, so like, why is it a big deal that he's making another army? Because these ones are two-headed lizard-shaped, as we'll see. Spoilers, yeah. The sorceress does warn He-Man that things are not always as they seem. They had to get a vague prophecy-sounding thing in. So back at the palace, Man-at-Arms and Tila are experimenting with the laser lasso. There's a lot more techno babble here. Something about a circular laser thing that they have to adjust. There's a literal sentence, adjust the knob, amplify the electronic circuits, science things. It's pretty silly. He-Man crashes their nerd party then. And says to Man-at-Arms, Skeletor is raising an army and he has a plan to take over Eternia, to which Man-at-Arms responds with this consternated look on his face. What is his plan? He just explained it to you, Man-at-Arms. Come on, Duncan. He's raising an army, trying to take over Eternia. But things are not always as they seem. Tila moves to join but Man-at-Arms asks her to stay and work on the lasso. Once again, she like, I should come, I can help. And he like puts her down, chastises her. Like, no, you have to stay and finish the laser lasso and we'll go. She's like, but dad. And she has a point. She's captain of the guard. She's very capable. She's like one of their better warriors. She's more valuable than Stratos. Might be in the same tier as Stratos. Definitely more valuable than Ram Man. She's done more cool things than Man in Arms has, I feel like. So He-Man, by definition, is the most powerful man in the universe. What are the other tiers of, I guess, the Masters of the Universe and the rest of the folks? It does seem like the Sorceress she would be up there by default, but has not done a lot of helpful things. She's been like put to sleep by the singer of Celise or Celise the singer or whatever it was. She got out zapped by his last episode. Mulcrum? Yeah, the Minos Centaur 
tentacle monster. Yeah, 80s rock star. Sorry, forgot about the hair. <laughs> it's a defining feature. Yeah. I mean, she's got like magic powers, zapping stuff. So I put her up there. Probably power level above Tila, but like capability less than Tila. Tila's like the most capable person. He, man, things just fall together for him. And he chucks something or throws a rock, but like Tila gets out of jams. So then maybe man at arms, Stratos. Stratos has, has hand zaps and he can fly. I mean, you count Man-at-Arms, like, inventions as part of his power set? I think you must, yeah. So then, yeah, he'd probably be above Stratos. Orko is sort of a wild card. He's either got god-tier powers or, like, is junk. Sort of the Krillin of the Masters of the Universe. That's a Dragon Ball Z reference. Oh, is that what that was? I have to confess, my Dragon Ball Z lore isn't that good. Krillin is the... I know who he is, but, like... Okay, we'll go ahead and explain it for our listeners. The short, bald sidekick of Goku, who I think is a human and is generally the comic relief sidekick character, but occasionally in moments of high drama, he'll get really angry or his friends will be imperiled and then he'll bust out the magic key power or whatever they use in Dragon Ball Z and slice something in half with a, like, power disc or something send your corrections and hate mail to hello at attorneyreview.com okay he-man has enlisted man-at-arms tila has tried to join but is told to work on the lasso we cut over to skeletor who's watching he-man and man-at-arms on the skelefewer which i only just realized because they show it very clearly in this episode that it is the back of skeletor's ram scepter So Skeletor has this purple scepter that at the top has like a ball and then some ram horns and a little face on it. And the television Skele viewer that he watches is just the back of that thing's head. So he definitely wants to upgrade his television. So that's when they reveal the army, right, that they're making. And they are robot dinosaurs. Serpentoids. You can't really tell at first, but they have two heads for reasons. Because two heads are deadlier than one. More teeth. More teeth. (laughs) And they just like take this block of some sort of material, which, so they have this material that they now can make an army. Do you think that's the Fultanium from the moon? So in the Fultanium episode, yeah, Skeletor and friends are revealed behind the curtain on the moon. Skeletor immediately zaps the queen into hag form and mind controls her and then they're like running around on the moon doing he-man hijinks and it's never revealed what happened to that shipment of fultanium they had plenty of time to get it down here you know these large bluish gray blocks are on a conveyor belt and they go through a central machine it looks very high-tech lots of little knobs and screens and stuff Several thingamajigs. Yeah, several thingamajigs. And then there's a little flash, and then out the other side comes, yeah, a serpentoid, two-headed blue robot dinosaur lizard. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Tila has summoned Orko to the workshop and wants to test out the lasso. And by summoning Orko, she also summons Orko's theme. Yes, which is awesome. I just remembered, okay, it's in my cart still. I ordered a kazoo. I'm going to order a kazoo to make our theme song. (laughs) I was wondering how hard it would be to 
learn the opening credits like on banjo so maybe we could do like a banjo kazoo mashup <laughs> yeah i'm down for it can you do just like the rhythm part and then uh just the kazoo to just hammer in and really set up our show yeah kazoo and banjo all right look forward to that listeners in five to ten episodes <laughs> we'll stop talking about ben's candles and have some actual intro music yeah orko when he appears mentions that he would do anything for Tila, and his eyes do the weird possessed swirly animation yeah be like he's hypnotized like i would do anything for you Tila, and his eyes go all squiggly and it's really weird it is weird and Tila just sort of ignores that and then awkwardly breaks into another subject and it might have been just a weird read on it it didn't seem like it was awkward to her it seemed like she was into it to me for some reason the way she said it to me read like someone tells you something and you're taking a big drink of water and then you finish and gulp and then change the subject. I don't know. She does kind of blow off and gets back to task at hand anyway. Yeah, she sort of ponders going after He-Man and Man-at-Arms. The laser lasso has succeeded and Orko is trying to interject in her little monologue to try to get free, but she sort of ignores him. They actually like acknowledge that she's monologuing, basically. And she's just like going back and forth like out loud about whether or not she should go now because she's finished her job, but she was told not to go. And then meanwhile, like every 30 seconds, Orko's like, hey, can you get me out of the ropes now? Yeah. And I thought that was a pretty fun character moment i guess because that she's actually monologuing to herself when she monologues and not a bad joke i guess any joke that's not an obvious pun feels refreshing but Mm -hmm. the yeah little tension between orko who's tied up in the laser lasso and tila who's distracted by wondering if she should go after he-man and man-at-arms was at least a little funny we cut over to He-Man and Man-at-Arms who are approaching the fortress, which is surrounded by tall rock walls. And the central structure is like a pink palace, two large spires topped with pink spheres. There's no army in sight, so Man-at-Arms and He-Man split up to investigate. Yeah, there's nobody in sight, and they're like, oh, there'd at least be guards if someone were here. Like, what's going on? But... As it turns out, the fortress has zaps. So it's like they, it shoots from like the tallest ping pong tower, just like zaps at them. Zaps at Man-at-Arms, who falls back. He-Man tells Man-at-Arms to get back to the Sky Sled, which I guess is the name of the like hover chariots that they ride around all the time. I thought those were Wind Raiders, or is that the one that's like actually enclosed? They call it Sky Sleds in this episode. The Wind Raider is like a green single person go-kart with little wings that flies around. And the Sky Sled is a blue jet ski that you kind of half crouch on the back of. And it flies around in the air as well. So they're sort of different. It's either awkward crouching or sitting. The Wind Raider seems like the better mode of travel because you have a chair to sit in. While Man-at-Arms is getting zapped, Beastman appears up on the wall and Skeletor telepathically tells him to call his friends, which turns out to be a large pink pterodactyl. 
So is this the first time Skeletor's communicated with Beastman by being a ghostly visage over his shoulder? You've seen the sorceress do this to He-Man before, where she's just like a transparent face next to him or something. Beastman has contacted creatures telepathically. I don't know if we've seen Skeletor do it yet. It's the first time they communicated this way. So then Beastman, his ESP, he also uses like an ESP ghost face and like uses his ESP to get a pterodactyl to come. The pterodactyl swoops in and grabs man-at-arms who had been hiding behind a rock with Battle Cat against the zaps. The pterodactyl flies off and drops man-at-arms at Beastman's feet. He's flanked by two blue lizard serpentoids. Beastman hits him with the official pun of the day. Glad, Glad you could drop in. <laughs> yeah. Beastman lays some villain talk down on them, like, you're not going to need anything. You're done for. But better than that. Like, it hit some solid villain banter coming out of Beastman. Yeah, so if Skeletor would only let him fly a little bit, maybe Beastman could be a real villain. Skeletor appears on a screen inside the fortress, in the Techno Fortress, where they're making all the robots, and tells Trapjaw to release the army when He-Man arrives. So this was the plan, to capture Men-in-Arms? I think they're just rolling with it at this point. It seems like it to me, too. This is all improv. They've transitioned the plan of army to, like, use Men-in-Arms at bait to get He-Man to come rescue him and then attack He-Man with the army of Serpentoids. Which, I don't know, the way that Skeletor presents it to Trapjaw, oh, now we've got He-Man right where we want him. When he comes to rescue Man-at-Arms, we'll release the army. But they were going to release the army anyway. So it's not really a change in their strategy. Maybe they figure He-Man will be surrounded more easily in the castle grounds. But He-Man and Battle Cat leap atop the wall and are confronted by screeching and the ominous shadows of the serpentoids against the castle wall. There's some awful shrieking from those things, man. He-Man throws one of the lizard monsters into a wall. Battle Cat kind of shrugs another one off of its shoulders, and both of them break. He-Man notes that they are robots, and... How did he not know that beforehand? They have very obvious bolts sticking out of their joints. Yeah, they look like robots. So He-Man here says something interesting. He says that this is the Master's Unstoppable Army. Yes. Which I picked up because I also read it. It's in the Amazon trivia notes. So he's that's implying that the Master's are Skeletor and company. And that was originally, apparently, originally the idea was that Skeletor and the bad folks were going to be the masters of the universe. So do you think they're not now, or do you think they just don't tell you who the masters are? They have not said. The only thing that they've implied is that it's not Ram Man. They just keep presenting that evidence. Over and over again. Over and over again. Even if they said it was, at this point, the read of the show apart from this line there is no evidence that it is that although you do have to consider the artist's intent truman the issue that i have is that having skeletor and friends be the masters of the universe positions he-man and the rest of the folks at palace eternia as rebels fighting against an established power and that is not that's not really the narrative yeah, it's not even close to what's going on. 
It, yeah, it implies that Skeletor has control over well, the universe, right? So he doesn't, I mean, at all. Although, if both Skeletor and He-Man, and maybe some of the other select followers, are all the masters of the universe, it would explain the zany relationship that Skeletor and He-Man have. So you are a master of the universe. He-Man is the most powerful man in the universe. Skeletor has mastered the power of cackling and zapping. What are you going to do with your time? You have two unstoppable forces. You're both masters of the universe. So you play these incredibly dumb cat and mouse games, which have no real ramifications. The He-Man always lets Skeletor go. Skeletor never designs a plan that is has a remote chance of being successful. Because if either of the sides won, even if they could, you know, imprison Skeletor in a pocket dimension or whatever, Eternity would be extremely boring for a master of the universe. Yeah, I like that theory a lot because it also plays into how like bad like regular person's life is compared to these power players who essentially just play games with everybody else because they're playing games with each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All of the power players are the masters of the universe. He-Man is one of these many like powerful beings that inhabit the universe and have their weekly jaunty episode adventures. So Kern's theory is Masters of the Universe are all of the characters of the show. And Ram-Man. And Ram-Man. <laughs> we cut back over to Trapjaw, who presses a large triangle button and releases many more robots. Part of their plan is that they will make so many robots that He-Man can't even hope to stop them all at once. He-Man begins punching, but they start to overwhelm him. He makes a reference to bowling. Which his mom must have told him about. And throws a boulder at a collection of robots. Marlena must be so into bowling that she told her son about it enough that he remembers what a strike is. Like, she had to have gone pretty in-depth. She must have liked bowling enough to have brought it over to Eternia, basically. Like, she, he had to have played games of it to remember what a strike is. Enough that he makes a joke about it. So Prince Adam is looking up at his mom, Marlena, and saying, Boy, Eternia sure is nice with all these gardens to smoke weed in, but do you ever miss anything from Earth? Her answer is bowling. Yeah. Bowling, my son. I used to be in a league every Tuesday night. Me and the girls would go out. We were called Space Girls because we were all at NASA. We had matching uniforms. And when you hit all the pins down, it's a strike. Remember that. It's the important information of the story. Yeah. So He-Man and Battle Cat are running around smashing lizard robots. Trapjaw is continuing to operate the conveyor belt that turns lumps of blue, maybe Fultanium, into more lizard robots. Looks like a stalemate until Tila flies up with the laser lasso now perfected. These are my notes, word for word. Laser lasso, in all caps. Also what and what. The lasso is what contains them. So here's the translation. Tila approaches, has the laser lasso, calls down to He-Man, and casually tosses the laser lasso in He-Man's general direction. Beastman intercepts the laser lasso. I'm going to guess this is where one of the what's comes in and yeah. makes a quip about how it's not going to be so easy. 
presses a button, the laser lasso pops out and ties Beastman up on accident. There's another what. And then the laser lasso falls down into He-Man's hands. He-Man, even though there's one big button to press, has to call out to Tila to ask what the instructions are. Is interrupted by more uh, serpentoid attack. There's another what. And then Tila yells, hey, just press the button and turn the dial. And then He-Man points the laser lasso and it encircles one uh, serpentoid and then grows to fit more as he aims it like he's shooting silly string yeah uh, and the finishes off with a really or three yeah. question marks that was an excellent interpretation right there i'm glad i could hit most of them at least the serpentoids are now taken care of he-man tells tila that she can destroy the machine that is constructing them with her freeze ray because she has one of those yeah kind of pops out of her large shirt cuff and then they walk in on Trapjaw and Beastman doing something. Wait, I missed this one. What are they doing? It's really just that Beastman is sitting with his hands tied and Trapjaw is trying to saw through the ropes to free him. But there's some grunting and suggested movement <laughs> that goes along with the animation. I see it now. Oh, yeah. Tila freezes the conveyor belt machine and Trapjaw demonstrates very clearly why his replaceable arm power is not all that great. Yeah, because he has to take the his exist whatever arm he's got installed now. He's like, all right, I got the perfect weapon for the situation. All right. And he pulls out whatever he's got in there, which is usually like a just some sort of gun, and gets a different gun. This is the best gun. And he puts it in there and has to screw it back in real quick. And by that time, Tila freeze raised the both of them. Not very quick on the draw, trap jaw. So Skeletor is disappointed in them and teleports them back to Snake Mountain. But they still have to find men at arms. So they've frozen the army production machine, but Skeletor still has men at arms. He's just rolling with whatever the plan is right now. Okay, I've got men at arms now. He's got to come save him. Which He Man, apparently, underneath the metal banding on his chest, keeps a handy life force detecting handheld uh, scanner. There are a lot of gizmos in this episode. There are. This looks like the third thing, right? We've had the laser lasso, the freeze ray, and now the life force detector. All three new as for this episode, I think. Yeah. None of them have shown up before. I'm sure the freeze ray will show up again. Maybe the laser lasso probably won't. Maybe the life force detector will. Although you would assume that at the other times when Tila's life has been imperiled and she's been literally beating shadow beasts with a stick, that maybe she would have used the freeze ray at that point. Yeah, that seemed to be a more effective weapon. But He-Man pulls out the life force detecting gadget. It tells them that Man-at-Arms is in the mountain behind a wall. So... He-Man punches, punches the wall. wall. Yeah. yeah. Which sets off a self-destruct sequence for reasons. All part of Skeletor's plan. Like things are not as they seem. Is that what that was what it wasn't as it seemed? Like, what the hell? There is some point earlier in the episode where He-Man says that must have been what the sorceress was talking about. That was right after they first destroyed the serpentoids and found out that they were robots. 
Oh, so the robots was the deception. That they were robots and not real serpentoids, not real lizard things. That was why they didn't. nothing was as it seems. Which has no bearing on Skeletor's extremely straightforward plan to At build an all. army and attack Eternia. But wild beeping fills the corridor. Skeletor taunts He-Man and Tila. Ah, the self-destruct mechanism was meant to keep intruders out, but now it will keep man-at-arms in. I mean, first of all, who designs a self-destruct sequence to keep invaders out? That's a last resort to keep them from discovering your technology or utilizing your resources that you leave behind as you try to escape. Not a deterrent. All part of Skeletor's plan. All part of Skeletor's plan. So they managed to find Duncan over there. He sounds super old because he's like calls through the cave that they're walking through. Over here. Yeah. And there's literally a bomb next to him because that's the self-destruct sequence. Where do you keep the self-destruct mechanism? It is right by the prisoner in chains. This does not stop He-Man who grabs the bomb and throws it up into the sky. Because they're not in the cave. They're in a cavern or in like a canyon or something. Yeah, volcano maybe. There's no roof anyway. They can see the sky. And for the third time in 11 episodes, He-Man has saved the day by causing a radioactive fallout to rain down from the heavens. Hey, if it works, you know, stick with it. He-Man has a really quick one line here where, oh, good thing we saved Duncan. I guess I better go destroy the robot army real quick. And then they cut back over to Palace Eternia. We have to tie up that loose end because they didn't destroy it through the freeze ring. He's actually have to go destroy it for good or something. I guess there were packs of serpentoids that were just encircled by the laser lasso. So you got to take care of those. So they're back at Palace Eternia for their ending scene. Tila's explaining like what she did this episode, basically showing off the lasso. Adam walks in. Tila's like, oh, Adam, you wouldn't be interested in this. And he's like, well, you'd be surprised. Wink. Yeah, heavy wink, mugging the camera. And then we're out. That's it. Apart from nothing is as it seems, what did you learn from this episode? You know, Truman, it's important as you go through life to be prepared for a lot of different types of situations. And so it's important to know a lot of different types of knots to use with your ropes. (laughs) Is the square knot, the bow line, the two and a half hitch. The lesson of the day for me is to learn your knots because you never know when you're going to need them. Um, That lesson is fine and good, Ben, (laughs) but what if you have a laser lasso that will produce knotted rope for you? I guess then you don't need to learn anything. You just have the gizmo to save the day. (laughs) It's like the teachers that told you, no, one day you won't have a calculator in your pocket. (laughs) Yeah, and yet here I am, Mrs. Anderson. Laser lasso in hand. After the fade to black, Tila approaches the camera. In today's story, I asked my father for permission to do something I wanted to do. When he didn't give it to me, I did it anyway. I was lucky. Nothing happened to me, but it could have. Now, maybe mothers and fathers aren't always right, but if they don't always let us do something we want to do, there's generally a pretty good reason. All in all, I think it's pretty nice to have someone who's always trying to do what's best for us, and who loves us enough to say no, when it would be much easier to say yes. Bullshit. The last episode this happened in where she got talked down for disobeying, I guess, always obey your parents. And that was this episode? (laughs) Yep.
man. But parents are bullshit. Learn your knots. So the most important thing that I noticed this episode is that the bird helmet that the sorceress wears looks incredibly self-satisfied. Like smug? Very smug. When the sorceress is in human form, I don't know if it's part of her hair or what, but almost as a little crown across her forehead is like a bird beak that juts out and then two little eyes. Yeah, it's like a headdress sort of situation. And like the hawk head is over her head like a, is that a specific type of crown where it just comes down over it? But it's basically like a little headdress with a hawk and like her hair is the hawk feathers. That bird does look smug. I pulled it up. Oh, it's similar to like a small child that has animal pajama onesie with a hood where the hood is like the head of the animal. So she's wearing like a, a hawk sweatshirt with a hawk head hoodie. Yeah, that's just sitting up there looking extremely smug. It's just like, yeah, I'm a hawk. What of it? Things aren't always as they seem. I took a long look at the coat of arms that's on the job bridge of Castle of Grayskull. What did you discover? Not anything interesting, but here's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a skull, obviously, right? It's got like fangs and mutton chops and there's six feathers coming out of the back. Oh, there's six feathers that are like on the side of it, three on each side. And then it's got a traditional coat of arms, like shield looking thing with two swords behind it and like horns coming out of the top. Two horns, like bull horns and what looks like a third horn out of the top, but kind of looks like a cowboy hat. So what do you think that symbolizes? Heavy metal. Castle Grayskull is... As you mentioned, and they've done several more exterior shots since you brought this up, like a calcified spider that is standing on, I don't know, knobbly stone legs. It's pretty. And then the big jawbridge skull for the entry. It is extremely metal. This show is a lot of like heavy metal for kids. Yeah, yeah. So the coat of arms, I don't know a lot about like medieval symbology about what it would mean. I mean, it's just the skull motif. There's swords and feathers. The swords of He-Man and the feathers of the sorceress. Yeah. There we go. I don't know what the horns on top would be. Since there's a coat of arms, it implies that there's like a tradition of some sort, like a family that carries the crest. Which is true, as the sorceress mentioned to Tila, her secret daughter. One day, Tila will carry on this Grayskull tradition of protecting the secrets. So one day, that'll be Tila's crest. Maybe our resident history expert, call-in listener Brendan, can provide (laughs) some feedback, which maybe brings us to listener mail segment. Listener mail? We got one listener mail by way of Facebook. Longtime listener, second-time caller Brendan came back to elaborate on the point about prime ministers. I thought I was going to get some corrections because he. I, I learned more about prime ministers since that episode. So I want to hear it. What does he got? So the term overlaps, and I'm quoting directly from this Facebook comment. Mm-hmm. The term overlaps the transition from despotic monarchy through to democracy. So it's a vestige of older forms of government. For example, a king might have a foreign minister a yada minister, a prime minister, etc. The minister is the hand of the king. Then in constitutional monarchy, parliament starts to have more control over the ministers. 
Often the ministers must be MPs, and eventually they must be selected by parliament itself. England's transition to democracy was very slow, like 800 years of monarchical loss of power. So the terms stuck throughout the transition and have largely been inherited by parliamentary systems throughout the world. In attorney, I think we can assume that a minister is a high-ranking governmental position. If there is no evidence of democracy, I think that is doubly true, as it would be weird for attorney to have positional titles based on Earth's unique history. And then some bonus fun facts. The U.S. is one of the only countries that does not use terms like these. We have secretaries as we purposefully broke from most of the trappings of monarchy. And then a final fun fact. Brendan writes, my favorite old government term slash body is England's, quote, star chamber. It was an objectively horrible institution, sort of Inquisition style, but it has a great name. Thank you, Brendan. <laughs> yes, thank you, Brendan. And I learned about the prime minister since that episode is that specifically in England, they're not an elected position. And I said they were. So they're probably elected in most representative democracies, but specifically in England, which is to Brendan's point that they're slow loss of monarchical power they're still directly appointed by the monarch they're just traditionally from the party the political party that got the most seats in the house of commons ah so whoever gets the most seats in the house of commons like basically they nominate their person and then the queen just yep that's the person because that's who the party the political party that's in power basically so coming back to Eternia, if a prime minister is the hand of the king, that implies a relationship between the Song of Solis kingdom, Taran, and mm -hmm. King Randor. King Randor must have appointed whatever that prime minister's name was. Or some Pangus. other... Sorry, I remembered his name. His name is Pangus. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Pangus. Thank you. <laughs> Always remember. Never forget Pangus. Always remember Pangas, who is either appointed by King Randor or I suppose could be appointed by some other ruler that we have not met yet. That to be the ruler of, of Terran, right? Because if it's a prime minister, is the chief minister of the kingdom. So unless King Randor is assigned this minister to manage this thing, but he would be managing more than that. Like he's a sonic on us. He's been there for a while. So I would think he'd be the appointed minister of the king of or queen of Terran in my opinion. That makes sense, yeah. Because if it were prime minister for Randor, that minister would be in Eternos or on some short, brief mission, not like living in Terran. Ruling the city-state of Terran, yeah. There was one other piece of evidence to back up the masters of the universe playing games with each other theory. Was it that this plot was just dumb and there's just like kind of <laughs> running around? <laughs> Yeah, the evidence is literally every episode of <laughs> He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. When He-Man approaches Man-at-Arms and Tila, who are tinkering with the laser lasso, we get that scene where Tila wants to come help, but Man-at-Arms tells her to stay and continue working on the laser lasso. And it occurred to me that if Skeletor were an actual threat, then every time something happened... He-Man would be wiser to round up all of the help that he can. It's not a big deal that Skeletor is up to something. He-Man is going to grab one or two people, whoever looks like they're kind of bored at the moment, and go deal with the situation, but it's not a national emergency. This is like, a, oh, Man-at-Arms is probably not busy. I'll go see what he's up to. 
or this seems like a man, oh, man at arms alley. You know, he'd have fun with this one. He'll get tied up to a stalagmite or something. Yeah, this was not a great episode for man at arms because he approaches the old fortress, gets zapped at several times, picked up by a pterodactyl, and then tied to a rock for the rest of the episode. Good showing on his part. He Yeah, he literally, He-Man brought him along to get kidnapped. He did nothing else but get zapped up and tied to rocks. Separately, there is some more evidence about Eternia as ancient fallen culture that He-Man and King Randor and Skeletor and everybody are playing around in, mm-hmm. more or less. Because this fortress, this long-abandoned fortress, has some incredibly high-tech and large workshops that I don't think Skeletor and Trapjop built themselves. It feels like it must have existed there before. And we don't know how long they were building their army before the sorceress started watching it on her castle grayskull big screen. That doesn't have the same ring to it as Skeletvision. But it couldn't have been that long before she noticed that they were amassing something. So like they couldn't have built the whole infrastructure to pump out this many serpentoids at once. So another case where... Uh, fallen culture, the elders, maybe? Yeah, I mean, could the elders be the former masters of the universe, more or less, or like the former, I mean, the former nations, basically, right? There are a couple of pieces of fiction. I think the culture novels by Ian M. Banks come to mind, which is like a space opera set of sci-fi books. And the culture is this big organization and they and, and several other civilizations, I guess you could say, inhabit the universe. But they always talk about the, they might call them the elders in this too, that have reached the apex of all advancement and have ascended to some other state of being. So I wonder if the elders in Eternia's case are maybe the old masters of the universe and then they had their six seasons and a movie. They reached apotheosis and ascended to godhood. Yeah, exactly. I learned that word today, by the way. Apotheosis is why I bring it up. It's a good, nice slip in. That's a great word. That's like a big sci-fi trope, though. That as civilization advances, essentially you become like disembodied consciousnesses and ascend to a different dimension. We mere three-dimensional, four-dimensional beings can't understand or comprehend. And leave behind all these trappings of your civilization that the other ones, the people or the other civilizations left behind kind of find and tinker with. I wonder if the current day people of Eternia are living in, I guess, the leavings of the elders who have ascended. Should be more like of a wheel of time situation where they're like the reincarnations of the old masters of the universe. And there's all these remnants of past civilizations and they kind of know that these elders existed like they know the old in wheel of time the old Aes Sedai were there they know the stories of them so this is like the second coming of the masters of the universe the second or the infinite nth coming yeah 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 uh you got anything else no i don't think i do thanks so much brendan for the excellent listener mail yeah and actually like giving some actual knowledge and actual real learning to give for our podcast if you listener have thoughts that you would like to share with us we actually do have an email address so you don't have to friend me on facebook or find my 
phone number scrawled on a wall somewhere. You can reach us at hello at attorneyareview.com. So kids, learn how to tie that bowline. Is that even a knot? And we'll see you next time on the Attorney Review. It is a knot. Way to tie in the episode. Wait, tie up the episode. Wait, I don't know. <laughs> Way to tie it all together. There we go. That's the one I wanted. Oh, boy. <laughs>